Hello, this is UU Utah Phillips, the golden voice of the great Southwest, and you are listening to Loafer's Glory, the hobo jungle of the mind. From Bart Kennedy, the tramp philosopher, 1898. Whenever I go to Westminster, I am struck with the resemblance that exists between politicians and tramps. I, an old tramp, am filled with admiration and reverence as I gaze upon them. Had I been a cleverer and more intelligent man, I would have attained to the privilege of sitting among them. But I do not feel jealous. For how can an old tramp feel jealous of men who are skillful enough to earn big salaries in the way they earn them? Their work in life is to sit easily and think, and when they are tired of thinking, to get up and say what they want to say and then sit down again. It is grand. These statesmen have attained to the very summit of the tramp's ideal. They loaf and lounge and talk, and they are paid handsomely for this loafing and lounging and talking by a grateful nation. Splendid. This is Utah Phillips, and I'm with my engineers, Steve Baker. Jimmy and Nancy Borsdorf, of course, play that theme music. And um, I'm up here in the mountain fastness in a, in a dense rain for the past two weeks of Nevada City, California. Nevada City, a town so small that we haven't got a village idiot. Everybody takes turns. This is a program about radio. Yes, I know, I've heard that in 1908, a fellow in Massachusetts uh, built a transmitter and, uh, and started broadcasting uh, music, and it was only picked up by ship operators at sea. But it was, in fact, November 2nd, 1920, that 50 watts blazed forth from East Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and thus the birth of the first radio broadcasting station, KDKA. Let me set. A, let me give you a setting for this. Let's say that that Mike Malone had immigrated from Ireland, got tired of working in the coal mines over in Schuylkill County, Pennsylvania, and took a small farm with his family in the western part of the state. It's the dead of winter, mid 1920s. The kids have been out shoveling the snow off of the double doors of the root cellar. You can hear them stamping in the halls as they bring in armloads of wood for the fire. There's dinner, the sound of breathing, the sound of the fire, the sound of the wind outside, and then a high, squeaky sort of a sound. And if you were to look out the window, you'd see on a post facing into the wind, a wind generator spinning away. And out of the wind generator would come wires that would go through small holes bored in the window frame down underneath the table and hooked up to some batteries. And those batteries would be hooked up to the back of an oblong-shaped object called a radio, an Atwater cant, on top of which was a detachable horn. So, Mike Malone, after dinner, leans over and turns the contraption on. And what should he hear coming out of it? but the voice of John McCormick, 
the greatest of the Irish tenors, and probably takes his mind back to the green shores of Erin, back to the County Clare. Here's what he heard, recorded in 1920, John McCormick singing The Bard of Armagh. sounds awful sentimental, doesn't it? But then, I live in a community of sentiment, not an age of information. It wasn't too long before radio figured out that it could be the people's ballad singer. It could be the source of the people's broadsides, the news of the day out in front of millions of people at the same time. They found out that it was better for the sponsors and they could hang on to more listeners if they dwelt extensively upon the plight of one human being while ignoring or examining in only the most cursory way 
uh, entire famines in India and in China. The first of those events of single individuals that were covered by the radio happened in Mammoth Cave, Kentucky. A young fellow by the name of Floyd Collins, a spelunker, had crawled in there. He got stuck. Well, a reporter crawled in, a, a newspaper announcer with a microphone, and interviewed him in the act of perishing, if you can believe that. Well, in fact, record producer at the time was traveling through Florida, heard about it, talked to the Reverend Andrew Jenkins, who had a reputation for making up songs, moralistic songs about staying right with your maker. He wrote the, the Wreck of the Royal Palm and another, other disaster songs. We're going to listen to the song that came out of Floyd Collins. I'm going to have it sung for you by the the, uh, Reverend Baby Hoover. I've I've played some of uh, Baby in Virginia for you before. These are the two ladies who work on the streets of uh, the Lower East Side of New York. uh, And in order to keep a storefront mission open, they, they sing in beautiful harmonies and play the accordion. And Reverend Baby Hoover keeps time by shaking a nickel, dime, and a quarter in a tin cup. And that's what she's doing here, Reverend Baby Hoover singing the death of Floyd Collins. Well, every time I sing this Floyd Collins, why, I see a little girl sitting on the floor with her ear uh, fastened to an old-fashioned uh, Victrola with a speaker, with a great, a great big speaker made out of wood with cloth uh, in the front of it. And uh, I can, this little girl is myself, and I have just a little poor little gingham dress on, and I'm sitting there trying to catch every word of this song because it took my heart when I first heard it. I was nine years old at this time when I first heard and learned this song. And I, I heard this song three times, and then I had it. Oh, come all you young people and listen while I tell The fate of Floyd Collins, a lad we all knew well His face was fair and handsome, his heart was true and brave His body now lies sleeping in a lonely sandstone cave Oh, mother, don't you worry, oh, father, don't be sad I'll tell you all my story in an awful dream I had I dreamed I was a prisoner, my life they could not save I cried, oh, must I perish within this sandstone cave The rescue party labored, they worked both night and day To move the mighty barrier that stood within the way To rescue Floyd Collins, this was their battle cry We'll never know, we'll never let Floyd Collins die But on that fatal morning the sun rose in the sky The workers still were busy, we'll save him by and by But oh, how sad the ending, his life they could not save. His body now lies sleeping in a lonely sandstone cave. Young people, oh, take warning from Floyd Collins' fate. And get right with your maker before it is too late. It may not be a sand cave in which you find your tomb. But at the bar of judgment, we too must meet our doom. 
And one other thing connected with this story. Uh, I, I had moved out into the oil fields for the first time in my life. And the oil fields would pump oil and, and they'd go and, and I'd beat out the song at night to the, um, to the rhythm of the, the pumping oil wells. And I used to call it my piano. Well, that was the death of Floyd Collins, baby, Reverend Baby Virginia Hoover. It took place in 1925. I shared a park bench with Hank Penny once in San Diego. Hank Penny was uh, kind of like an early Grandpa Jones. He told tales, played the banjo in the early days of radio. Hank Penny told me he was on the first coast-to-coast -coast radio broadcast in the history of the known universe. He said there were... There were guys all across the country up on the poles in the wind and the rain and the sleet showers physically holding the wires together so that this event could transpire. He said it emanated from Camden, New Jersey. The sponsor was Standard Oil of New Jersey, and of course the master of ceremonies was the great Will Rogers. Well, Hank Penny said he was tuning his banjo waiting to go on the air and he overheard a conversation between Will Rogers and the president of Standard Oil of New Jersey who was there for that historic occasion. Will Rogers said, now I'm about to talk to millions of people for the first time. Caesar couldn't do it, Alexander the Great couldn't do it, but I'm about to do it so it better be damned important. What do you think I ought to talk about? Well, Will, the president of Standard Oil said, perhaps you ought to mention to the people that Standard Oil of New Jersey is a service company. Well, Will Rogers didn't understand that. He walked around and thought about it for a while. Then they stood him up in front of the microphone through the switch, and there he was, alive for the first time in front of all of America and parts of Mexico and Canada. He said, ladies and gentlemen, I've been asked to offer a few remarks about Standard Oil of New Jersey, especially concerning its policy of service. Now, I didn't know what that meant. But then I cast my mind back over the long years to my daddy's ranch in Oklahoma. I remembered that we had a big stud bull and that local farmers would bring their cows by for service. I didn't know what that meant. I said, Daddy, what is the service we've been offering? He said, you're too young to know about that. Son, nature will provide that information in due course, and by the time you've got it, you'll be so glad you got it, you won't care where it came from. Same stuff they always give little kids. Well, I was disappointed. But then my daddy went away on a selling trip. He sold lightning rods part-time for a firm out of Des Moines, Iowa. The hired hands were out stretching wire. I was up at the big house alone. A neighbor came by leading a cow, asking for service. I thought, well, this might be my opportunity to find out what that might be. So I, I run them both into the pen. I closed the gate, climbed up onto the top rung, and sat down to watch. Well, my neighbor said, get down off of there, son. You're too young to know about that right now. And he sent me packing. I was sore disappointed. But I knew around back of that pen was a high board fence. And in that fence were some not holes. I snuck around there, rolled some cordwood back up against the fence, clambered up on it, put my eye to one of them knot holes and peered through. And ladies and gentlemen, I saw right there in front of me exactly what it is Standard Oil's been doing to the people all these years. Well, Will Rogers. Radio figured out fairly early, too, that it could increase its listenership by 
covering singular events. That first radio broadcast, for instance, in 1920, that simply announced the uh, presidential results of the election between Harding and Cox. Perhaps the most famous of all live coverages, though, happened in 1937, uh, a live broadcast from Lakehurst, New Jersey, when the enormous German dirigible, the Hindenburg, had crossed the Atlantic and preparing to dock the mooring mast there at Lakehurst. I want you to listen to a recording of the live coverage of the Hindenburg disaster. She called yesterday afternoon aboard one of the giant new 21-passenger flagships of American Airlines. It took us only three hours, 55 minutes, to fly nonstop from Chicago to New York. When we landed at Newark, we found another flagship of American Airlines waiting to take us to Lakehurst with our equipment when we were ready to go. And incidentally, American Airlines is the only airline in the United States which makes connections with the Hindenburg. The Hindenburg left Frankfurt, Germany, yes, uh, Tuesday evening, rather, at 7.30, their time. And for better than two and a half days, they've been speeding through the skies over miles and miles of water here to America. Now they're coming in to make a landing of the Zeppelin. I'm going to step out here and uh, cover it from the outside. So as I move out, we'll just stand by a second. Well, here it comes, ladies and gentlemen. We're out now outside of the hangar. And what a great sight it is. A thrilling one. It's a marvelous sight. It's coming down out of the sky, pointed directly towards us and toward the mooring mass. The mighty diesel motors just roared, their propellers biting into the air and throwing it back into a gale-like whirlpool. No wonder this great floating palace can travel through the air at such a speed with these powerful motors behind it. Now, a field that we thought active when we first arrived has turned into a moving mass of cooperative action. The landing crews have rushed to the posts and spots, and orders are being passed along, and last-minute preparations are being completed for the moment we have waited for so long. The ship is riding majestically toward us like some great feather riding as though it was mighty, mighty proud of the place it's playing in the world's aviation. The sh- ship is no doubt busting with activity, as we can see. Orders are shouted to the crew. The passengers are probably lining the windows, looking down at the field ahead of them, getting their glimpse of the mooring mass. It's practically standing still now. They've dropped ropes out of the nose of the ship, and uh, it's been taken a hold of down on the field by a number of men. It's starting to rain again. It's, the rain had uh, slacked up a little bit. The back motors of the ship are just holding it uh, just enough to keep it from... It's burst into flames. Get it started. Get it started. It's rising. And it's rising. It's rising. Terrible. Oh, my. Get out of the way, please. It's burning and bursting into flames and, and it's falling on the morning fast. And all the folks between it, this is terrible. This is the one of the worst catastrophes in the world. Oh, it's, it's, it's rising. 20, oh, four or five hundred feet into the sky. And it, it's a terrific crash, ladies and gentlemen. The smoke and the flames now, and the flame is crashing to the ground, not quite to the mooring mast. All the humanity and all the passengers screaming around it. I don't do it. I can't even talk to people whose friends are out there. It's a, it's, it's a, oh. I, I can't talk, ladies and gentlemen. Honestly, it's just like there are massive smoking wreckage. And everybody can hardly breathe and talk and craving, lady. I, I, I'm sorry. <laughs> Honestly, I, I can hardly breathe. I, I'm going to step inside where I cannot see it. <laughs> Charlie, that's terrible. <laughs> I, I, I Listen, folks, I, I'm going to have to stop for a minute because I've lost the voice. This is the worst thing I've ever witnessed. Oh, the Hindenburg. 
I, one of my great dreams, my great dreams of, uh, of boyhood, even today, is to be able to travel in one of those great airships. I want to sleep overnight, and they don't have dirigibles anymore, but in one of those blimps like the Goodyear one. I want to take a voyage in one of those. It's always been a, a fine dream of mine. You know, when I was a boy, I had a crystal set, and of course I was made to go to bed early. Uh, because I had had <clears throat> scarlet fever and uh, and uh, there were no antibiotics at the time, so I just had to suffer through it for a couple of months. But I had my crystal set. It's one that you ordered in a kit and built yourself. You wound the coil. There was no electricity for that. I uh, punched a hole in the screen on my window and ran the antenna out to a, a limb on the apple tree. On the top of that crystal set was a crystal. Well, it was a little little round metallic looking thing and um, a, a wire cat hair that arched over and the tip of that touched down into the crystal and you would pop that cat hair around among the hills and the valleys on that little crystal with your earphones on and you would by god pick up radio i mean i would i would this was in a southern ohio i would i would get uh, the national barn dance i'd get wheeling west virginia i could pick up um the louisiana hayride from shreveport uh, the Chicago barn dance, it was amazing. It was the first folk music I'd ever heard, the first country music uh, that I'd ever heard. My crystal set. Well, like I say, late at night with my flashlight, I would be down there under the covers tuning my crystal set to um, the programs I wanted to hear that I couldn't stay up late enough to hear. For the most part, I'd come home from school and turn on the radio and... Uh, at that time, I could listen to my favorite programs. Here's the way some of them sounded. Lone Ranger! A fiery horse with the speed of light, a cloud of dust, and a hearty high silver! The Lone Ranger! With his faithful Indian companion Toto, the daring and resourceful masked rider of the plains led the fight for law and order in the early western United States. Nowhere in the pages of history can one find a greater champion of justice. Return with us now to those thrilling days of yesteryear. From out of the past come the thundering hoofbeats of the great horse, Silver. The Lone Ranger rides again. Come on, Silver. Let's go, big fella. I am Silver. Hooray!
shadow knows. <laughs> he hunts the biggest of all game, public enemies that even the G-men cannot reach, the Green Hornet. Faithful valet Cato, Brett Reed, daring young publisher, matches wits with the underworld, risking his life that criminals and racketeers within the law may feel its weight by the sting of the Green Hornet. Ride with Brett Reed as he races toward another thrilling adventure. The Green Hornet strikes again. pulls away from the shore and our boat sinks slowly in the west, we approach the island of Lulu. <coughs> spelled backwards. <coughs> ul, ul. Ah, in the distance we hear Spike Jones and his wacky wackakians. <laughs>
Blind Kenny Hall doing our intermission music as usual from down in Fresno, California. With old radio themes, how many of you remember them? I remember lying awake at night with my brother uh, right after Pearl Harbor 1941, wondering how uh, the Green Hornet's faithful companion, Kato, who was Japanese, suddenly became a, a Filipino. Also, we hated Jack Armstrong. We hated Jack Armstrong, the all-American boy. We were supposed to live up to him. The parents always had something to get on you about because you weren't like Jack Armstrong. And that same guy, Joel Kupperman, remember uh, the quiz kids? The smart-ass, wise kids that get on the radio and answer difficult questions. They say, go and study so you can grow up so you can be like Joel Kupperman. Well... I don't know what happened to Joel Kupperman. Maybe he ate a chicken bone the wrong way. Maybe he went off and became a Pentecostal minister. The world would be a better place. Thank you, Joel Kupperman. Well, on Sunday afternoon at our old house in Ohio, my parents were, were labor organizers. Uh, it would come time for us to, to listen to the voice of labor. Uh, almost all major cities at that time had either their own radio station supported by labor or a program on, on the local station to give you national labor news and local labor news. We really need that again, you know. If it was time for the show, my brother and I were fussing or building model airplanes and talking to each other. My mother would suddenly stick her head into the door and into the room and say, Shh, it's Robeson. Well, of course, we'd stop what we were doing and go in and listen to the great African-American uh, baritone Paul Robeson, who, of course, was blacklisted during the McCarthy times. Uh, his passport was taken away from him, but he continued singing. The first of the labor radio shows started in 1926, WCFL, sponsored by the Chicago Labor Council. Uh, it was the first listener-supported radio. Got that? It was the first listener-supported radio against the wishes of the corporation, the government, and even national labor leaders. The Chicago Voice of Labor broadcast between 1926 and 1970. Well, let's turn that radio on, and let's hear what we might have heard coming out of it. It might have been the same old merry-go-round. That was the campaign of Henry Wallace on the progressive ticket, 1948. Uh, Michael Loring wrote a song about the same old merry-go-round. It might have been Paul Robeson singing. might have been Pete Seeger and the Almanac Singers singing the Talking Union. Well, let's listen and find out. Now the donkey is tired and thin The elephant thinks he'll move in But they ain't fooling us Cause their brothers right under the skin It's the same, same merry-go-round Which one will you ride this year? The donkey and elephant bob up and down on the the south, but don't let them fool you, 
divide you and rule you, cause they've got the same bit in the mouth. It's the same, same merry-go-round. Which one will you ride this year? The donkey and elephant, Baba and down on the Let me tell you what to do You got to talk to the workers in the shop with you You got to build you a union Got to make it strong But if you all stick together, boys will not be long You get shorter hours Better working conditions Vacations with pay Take your kids to the seashore 
It ain't quite this simple, so I better explain just why you got to ride on the union train. Cause if you wait for the boss to raise your pay, we'll all be awaiting till judgment day. We'll all be buried. Gone to heaven. St. Peter will be the straw boss then. Now you know you're underpaid, but the boss says you ain't. He speeds up the work till you're about to faint. You may be down and out, but you ain't beaten. You can pass out a leaflet and call a meeting. Talk it over. Speak your mind. Decide to do something about it. Of course, the boss may persuade some poor damn fool to go to your meeting and act like a stool, but you can always tell a stool, though, that's a fact. He's got a yaller streak running down his back. He doesn't have to stool. He'll always get along on what he takes out of blind men's cups. You got a union now and you're sitting pretty. Put some of the boys on the steering committee. The boss won't listen when one guy squawks, but he's got to listen when the union talks. He'd better be mighty lonely. Everybody decide to walk out on him. Suppose they're working you so hard it's just outrageous And they're paying you all starvation wages You go to the boss and the boss would yell Before I raise your pay I'd see you all in hell Well he's puffing a big cigar feeling mighty slick Cause he thinks he's got your union lick Well he looks out the window and what does he see But a thousand pickets and they all agree he's a bastard Unfair Slave driver Bet he beats his wife Now, boys, you come to the hardest time. The boss will try to bust your picket line. He'll call out the police, the National Guard. They'll tell you it's a crime to have a union card. They'll raid your meeting. They'll hit you on the head. They'll call every one of you a damn red, unpatriotic. Japanese spies. Sabotaging national defense. But out at Ford, here's what they found, and out at Vulte, here's what they found, and out at Alice Chalmers, here's what they found, and down at Bethlehem, here's what they found, that if you don't let red baiting break you up, and if you don't let stool pigeons break you up, and if you don't let vigilantes break you up, and if you don't let race hatred break you up, you'll win. What I mean, take it easy, but take it. Yes, Pete Seeger on the People's Radio. Now I'll give you this from WLT, A Radio Romance by Garrison Keeler. Radio was a raw, primitive, gorgeous device that unfortunately had been discovered too late. In the proper order of things, it should have come somewhere between the wheel and the printing press. It belonged to the age of bards and storytellers who squatted by the fire when all news and knowledge was transmitted by telling. Coming at the wrong time, radio was inhibited by prior developments such as literature. It was as if the ball had preceded the bat, so that when the bat finally was discovered, it was relegated to the ninth inning when players would throw bats in the air and try to hit them with balls. In the same way, literature, which was alien to radio, prevented it from reaching full flower. If only radio had come first... It would have kept poetry and drama and stories and the happy old oral tradition, and poets would simply be genial hosts who chant odes and lays instead of a bunch of nervous jerks like T.S. Eliot. Radio could have saved literature, but instead literature had imprisoned radio and literature's own disease, like an editor who asked the writer to take out all the funny parts. 
Literature had taken radio and hung scripts around its neck, choking the free flow of expression that alone could give radio life. Scripts made radio cautious, formal, tight, devoted to lines. But radio is not lines. Radio is air. Literary principles of form mean nothing. Radio has no linear context whatsoever. It is dreamlike, precognitive, primitive, intimate. It has less to do with politics or society than with sex, nature, and religion. I really want you to pay attention to this last tale, a long tale from Mike Agrinoff out there in New Jersey. It's called The Sandman. When the broadcast room's a living tomb of cracked acoustic tiles and you're left alone with your microphone and your playlist and your dials and the hands upon the studio clock past midnight creep towards one, it's time to take the air once more and the graveyard shift's begun. The day shift and the engineers have all left hours ago. You close the heavy soundproof door and set your board aglow. Cue the first two records up, settle in your chair, uncap and snap the transmit switch and... You're on the air. There's magic in the radio, enchantment in the ether, a power born of mind and brain and yet a part of neither, a power to be reckoned not in kilowatts or joules, a means to let a single voice touch half a million souls. Oh, but when you work that graveyard shift from 1 a.m. to 5, you start to doubt that anyone's out there or alive. The halls are lifeless. The phone is dead. And there's nothing quite so lonely as to call with kilowatts and reply here, (laughs) silence only. They usually stick the rookie jocks in a lonely graveyard slot, but me, I broadcast nights by choice. I like that shift a lot, because when I get the lonelies, as I do from time to time, I recall the Sandman's final show of 1969. 1960 radio was <laughs> awful at its best. I grew up with Cousin Brucey and the Wolfman and the rest. And between the fast talk and the hype and the acne lotion jingle and station breaks with sound effects, they'd maybe play a single. But that was all there was back then, and that was all we had. And nostalgia finds a way to sift the good from all the bad. And so intertwined was radio with fond scenes of my youth that it's tinted with a rosy glow that overlays the truth. Oh, and summer parties at the beach and every high school date, those midnight drives in my dad's olds and studying till late, they're all movies in my memory. And behind them I still hear the Beach Boys and the Beatles and the Motown, oh, so clear to the counterpoint of DJ hype and ads for Rheingold beer. But then in 67, FM burst upon the scene, where once played only Bach and Brahms became a rock fan's dream. Between the sparse commercials, they'd play three songs in a row and album cuts and full-length versions played in stereo and gone was all the mile-a-minute brainless DJ chatter and singing station breaks and other oral fecal matter. Instead, these guys with wit and charm told what they had to tell and spoke as if they thought that I might have some brains as well. I got to know them all by voice that summer, and come fall, I hung around the station till I came to know them all. Bill Clancy in the morning slot, Aunt Stacy, Charlie West, and the Sandman. Well, he was different and apart from all the rest. Paul Sandman did the overnights. He had a special style. He was older than the others, been around a while. He'd segue different album cuts in a stream of conscious run, do theme sets, live concert tapes. Boy, he'd made listening fun. 
And though he must have known my name, he always called me kid. But he let me watch him work, and he'd explain the things he did. And, and, and once or twice, he snuck me in the studio late at night and let me cue the tapes and records up to my delight till I wandered back home bleary-eyed as it was getting light. And as the records spun, he sat and talked of days gone by when radio was younger. <laughs> so was he. <laughs> and so was I. While round his lonely Kansas farmhouse no drifts blew and curled, the radio was a living color window on the world. He said, There was magic in the radio, enchantment in the ether, a power born of mind and brain and yet a part of neither, a way to take you miles and years by means unknown to science. Uh, but it's since become a, a, a jukebox, nothing more than an appliance. <laughs> I can tell you got the itch, kid. You'd like to be a jock? Oh, give it up. The magic's gone. There's nothing left but schlock. You deal with all the crazies and the drugged-out suicide calls and the sponsors and the FCC have got you by the throat. And programming tells you what to play and they take no denying. You eat copy advertising crap you'd never think of buying. The hours are long. The pay is squat. Vacations... But then... The cut would end. And he'd face the mic... And weave magic once again. Well, sure enough, he read me right. I guess he could recognize a little of his own obsession shining from my eyes. And when I left for school that fall and higher education, <laughs> my first stop was to make a beeline for the radio station. Throughout my freshman year, I learned the ropes and paid my dues. I engineered, did commercials, <laughs> swept, read the news. By the time I was a sophomore, I'd earned a weekly show. <laughs> I was on the graveyard shift, I was on the radio. And I learned Paul Sandman was a name that every DJ knew. The trade rags did his story. <laughs> he got a piece in Newsweek, too. And sometimes playing album sides from my deserted station, I'd tune in his show on my headphones just for inspiration. And so it was on New Year's Eve of 1969. School was out. They'd all gone home. The station was all mine. Yep. There was I, the rookie jock, left holding down the fort, well-stocked with day-old pizza pie and coffee by the quart. They had me work in triple shift from 8 p.m. to 8 playing records no one listened to while partying till late. And CBS had hooked lines across the country to Times Square. And at midnight, we'd switch over to a live broadcast from there to hear the famous ball come down and ring in the new year. By 11.10, it got so dead, you just could not believe who the hell's listening to the radio New Year's Eve? So I queued up Tommy. That would kill a half an hour or so. Kicked off my shoes, plugged in my phones, tuned in the Sandman's show. Something's different. Something's wrong. I knew right off the bat. He's playing straight top 40. His voice is sounding flat. There's dead air between his cuts. His spots all run too long. Inside of 15 minutes, I knew something there was wrong. I let him start a record, dialed up his private line. He answered with his call letters, and I replied with mine. Well, hiya, kid. Hey, tell me, ain't you got a better way to spend your New Year's Eve than with some busted-down DJ? Heck no, I'm on the air myself. I got lots of time, and I listen to your show because it's better far than mine, but, but tell me, Sandman, what's with you? Is everything all right? It seems to me as if you're somewhat off your stride tonight. Everything is not all right, he answered with a frown. The Arbitron reports came out, 
and our ratings have gone down. And, and, and Harry Stein in programming has determined that the way to get the ratings back on top is dictate what I play. So here I sit with list in hand that says at 10.15 I should play the Righteous Brothers followed by the Cream and then a public service spot and then some Moby Grape. Well, hell, they don't need a DJ. They could have put this crap on tape. <sighs> it's December 31st. The year is coming to an end and with it ends a decade. <laughs> And an era too, my friend. And in uh, 27 minutes, I'll switch off to Times Square. But when I return in 70, you tune in if you care to hear how good the radio could be, if it would dare. He broke off at that moment to cue up another platter. And I said goodbye. The who were almost finished for that matter. And exactly 27 minutes later, more or less, on cue I flipped the switch to hook us in with CBS and while thousands in New York bade fond farewell to 69 and Guy Lombardo and his orchestra played Old Lang Syne, I raised my slice of pizza and salute to the new year and once more to the Sandman at the end of his career. When the network show was over with, I went back on Mike. I did some inane comment about the future and the like. Did a station break, cued a record up and then plugged my headphones in and tuned the Sandman in again. Welcome, he began, to 1970 radio. You've noticed in the past a certain <clears throat> blandness to this show? Seems Harry Stein's determined what your music taste should be. Well, f*** you, Mr. Harry Stein. And f*** the FCC. I've had my filler radio. This here's my final hour, but the door's locked and bolted, and I'm on internal power, and, and I suppose they'll find a way to get me out eventually. But until then, you'll see how good the radio could be. And then the music started, and the magic came on strong, and, and, and how the sequence brought to light a hidden meaning to each song, and, and where he got those tapes and records I'll never know, old favorites I'd forgotten, live recordings from some show. You can get anything you want at Alice's Restaurant. You can't always get what you want. Where have all the flowers gone? The Beatles singing German, Dixieland on 78s, Benny Goodman, Walter Carlos, Bessie Smith, The Roommates. This is more than playing records. This is genius. This is art. You know, this is something all should hear. And damn, I'll do my part. I opened the equipment carton stowed beneath the board and rummaged through the junk there till I find the proper cord, patch headphone out to preamp in, adjust the input power, and the Sandman show gets relayed out through our antenna tower. I reach out to the telephone, dial WBVA, and it's answered there by Sharon Smith, their overnight DJ. Hey, Sharon, Paul Sandman's just flipped Harry Stein the bird, and he's putting out the best damn radio you've ever heard. And there's a brotherhood amongst the radio voices of the night. They stand behind the fellow jock. They see he's in a fight. Sharon had to listen but a moment. There was gone to find a patch cord of her own to send the Sandman on. And then the phones that long I thought were dead began to light as the calls came in from miles around from listeners in the night. Whence comes this wondrous music, they would ask. And I would smile. <laughs> and how come I pick it up on every station of the dial? And through the night the signal spread from station on to station as a DJ sent the Sandman and his magic crossed the nation, till Sharon called me, laughing, shouting like she was on fire, saying, Listen, 
Someone's put the Sandman on the network wire. That's right. The lines to New York were still hooked nationwide. I flipped the switch to listen in and laughed until I cried. The Sandman must have reached some hero New York engineer who put him on the wire for the whole damn world to hear. There was magic in the air that night. Enchantment in the ether. A power born of craft and pride and so much more than ether. And all across the country sat the overnight hardcore and shared the Sandman's magic. Till at twenty after four, he stopped to say goodbye as they were breaking down the door. New Year's Day dawned cold and gray with just a touch of sleet, and many a jock by nine o'clock found himself on the street. Me, I, I came off cheap. A reprimand was all I got. But New Year's night, a new voice broadcast from the Sandman slot. And since that night, the radio's become my occupation. I'm now a, a, a big-shot DJ at a major FM station. But when the hours start to drag and the night's going slow, I cue up an album side, crank up my headphone stereo, and tune into the Sandman, now on public radio. And when the broadcast room's a living tomb of cracked acoustic tiles and you're left alone with your microphone and your playlist and your dials, though the airwaves seem a, a, a graveyard of lifeless, whitened bone, there's always someone listening in. And you're really not alone. Well, that's radio, and this has been Utah Phillips with Loafer's Glory. Thanks for listening. Once again from Bart Kennedy, the Tramp Philosopher, 1898. Seriously, there has been far too much bossing in the world. People have known too much about others and not enough about themselves. And if you will just use your heads a bit, you will see that this instinct to boss is at the root of nearly all the load of trouble that the human race has to carry. One country knows exactly what is right and proper for another country. One race can tell another race all about it. And so we have wars and countries armed to the teeth so as to be ready to make wars. You say that this is human? Of course it is. And I will also add that it was once human for the men of England to eat each other, but we managed to get over that kind of humanity. <laughs> ¶¶